0: And I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. If you need a Bible or don't have a copy of one, there should be one in front of you and you can uh, grab that and use that. If you don't have one, feel free to keep it. It's a gift to you. Uh, if you do and you just need to use it for the day, that's fine too. We are in Hebrews, chapter 7. This morning speaking, we're looking at greatness. When you think of that word greatness, who comes to mind? Like think of uh, somebody of significance, Bible or non, Tom's hand is up. If anyone is thinking of Tom, thank you, Tom. I wasn't thinking Tom. That wasn't, that wasn't the first one. That's good. History is full of names and it's full of very significant names and scripture is full of Names, as we know, some of them we can't pronounce and some of them we've never heard before. But some of them are very significant to us for a number of reasons. There are recognizable names to almost everybody. And then there are names that maybe some of us have never heard before. Most of us have heard of Queen Elizabeth II. We know who that is. We know who Abraham Lincoln is, maybe. We know who Mother Teresa is. We've heard that one before. Elvis Presley, anyone like Elvis Presley? Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player of all time, maybe. Kobe Bryant, we know some of those names, right? And there's many more other names. We all know those names. And then when we think of those names, something kind of comes to our mind, you know, what is significant about that person? What has kind of been tied to that person and the significance that their their life has been as they've lived it? There's also names that would resonate with you as a Christian, as you look at the Bible. Who are some of them? Moses, Abraham, Jesus Christ, Paul maybe. And we know why they are significant, each one of those people as well. But there are names that are less familiar to us. Who knows who Larry Tesler is? He's the one who invented copy and paste on your computer. Praise God for Larry Tesler. (laughs) right? Copy and paste is a wonderful function that we get to use and it saves us much clicking. Or uh, Willis Carrier. You guys will all be thankful for him or most of you. He's the man who invented air conditioning. Willis Carrier. Did you know that? Yeah. Praise God for air conditioning, right? Or the beach, but the two are both very helpful. One more, Alexander Fleming. Maybe you know him. He invented antibiotics. And so maybe more than once has saved your life or at least made your life easier because of the invention that he has come up with. Anybody recognize those names? I didn't recognize any of them as a rhythm. Some of you may recognize a few of them. What about the Bible? We have Onesimus. Who knows Onesimus or Onesimus, however you pronounce that? The fugitive slave of Philemon. The only reason I know that is him is because my grandparents had a company named after them. And that was the only reason I knew Inesimus was a Bible character. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known that as well. Or Tychicus. Tychicus. He was the one entrusted by Paul to deliver the letters of the Ephesian, to the Ephesians and the Colossian church. Can you imagine if he wasn't, wasn't around to do that? Maybe Paul would have had somebody else out. But Seemingly insignificant, but he was the one who delivered those letters and served among, uh, with Paul. And it was certainly a great encouragement to him. What other names should people know? There are certain Bible characters that just cannot be overlooked for the role that they play in God's redemptive history, like Moses, like Abraham, even Paul, as he establishes the church in the New Testament. And so we have to recognize and appreciate the way that God has used certain people to help us to better understand the gospel and the way that God works. And apart from Hebrews, this book in chapter seven, we would not consider Melchizedek, as a list of names that we should know about, even, and uh, that we should talk about. And it seems that as we come to this book, that the Hebrew, uh, or the author of Hebrews, this pastor, is discovering this for the first time and making this connection, and he's sharing this with these believers, most of them from a Jewish background. He's sharing this insight with them, but he's making this connection that Melchizedek is related in the way that he worked, in the way that he's shown in Scripture, he was related to Christ as a type of Christ. And so Melchizedek is a name then that we need to better know because it better helps us understand God's redemptive plan in history through Christ Jesus. Several times in Hebrews we've already read according to the order of Melchizedek in comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek, Christ and Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews had to... Wait to present that to his, to his congregation and those that he was sharing with. But comparison really is an effective form of describing somebody, right? It's, a, it's an effective form. Wouldn't I love to be described alongside some of those great people in the Bible and in history for the things that they have done? And this morning, Jesus is compared to a historical figure according to the Old Testament scriptures. A man that really has not a lot said about him. Genesis 14, there's like three verses there that you would read over and probably glance over in your Bible reading plan. And then not until Psalm 110 do you see it picked up again. And then Hebrews. This is the only mention of this character, Melchizedek. And yet it's interesting how significant he is in the eyes of the author of this book. One of the most underrated characters maybe of the Bible. As he's only mentioned briefly. It's incredible to think that God would use somebody who is barely talked about in scripture to compare his son to, the son of God to. And so we're going to walk through that that this morning and see how these two figures historically line up. So that we might understand the biblical narrative and God's work in redemptive history. But before we do that, I think it's helpful for us to summarize really quickly. We come to, and I'm going to read Hebrews seven momentarily. But just to bring us up to speed on where this kind of fits, Melchizedek fits in history. In case you haven't read Genesis 14 recently and you're not reading your Bible plan, I'm not going to read Genesis, but just want to summarize that story for you briefly. And so in Genesis 14, we see uh, we see five kings going against four kings, basically, and there's this there's this war. And what's going on is Lot is a part. He, as Lot, Abraham's nephew, lives in Sodom or certainly around Sodom. He is captured in this war that goes on. These five kings come against four, and they the five kings lose to these four kings. And the survivor of that war comes to Abraham and he tells him that Lot's been captive and uh, and when what kind of happened, and so Abraham does what any man would do. He goes and grabs 318 of his highly trained men and he goes and he says, I'm going to take out these four kings, right? Who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't be brave enough to do that, right? And so the Bible says that he takes his 318 men and he showed up to the camp of these four kings in the night. It was a stealth mission and the bravery and courage of these men. They were able to overcome the four armies and Abraham was able to capture all of the possessions of those kings and Lot his nephew and bring it all back and bring them all back to safety. and then in Genesis 14, you see Sodom, the king of Sodom there with Abraham, and he converses with him in those verses, and they meet in the valley of Sheba, which is the valley of the kings, and Melchizedek is there, and this is where he comes up and you, gotta, you if you blink, you pretty much miss it in Genesis 14. He shows up there, he brings bread and wine, he, they have a feast, maybe it's a, a picture of the Eucharist and communion. That can be argued amongst uh, theologians. We're not going to this morning. But Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then he's pretty much gone. And Abraham tithes to him. And this is what it says in Genesis 14 19 through 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham, he tithes a tenth of what he has all the good things that he was received in that raid he gives a tenth of it to melchizedek and the author of hebrews wanted his audience to understand this and so we took a break in chapter 6 because we come to chapter 6 and although he wanted to get there he recognized that he couldn't the spiritual maturity of the believers he could not those who were Mature in Christ was what this topic was for, this Melchizedek, those who had fully embraced Jesus Christ as their high priest, as their mediator, as their savior, those were the ones that were able to receive this message of Melchizedek. And this is specifically important for a Jew to try to understand this and understand Melchizedek as he's presented in scripture. And so he offers a warning, and then he gives a beautiful encouragement of the surety of our salvation, the guarantee of it, the anchor that we can hold on to. And Jesus is said to be a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so our text this morning presents us with and proves to us the greatness and the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood. Which most of us, if we are not Jews, we have come to accept simply by understanding the New Testament. But this is a stumbling block for the Jewish believers. So let's read Hebrews 7. Starting in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth, and, sorry, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who made the promises, who, sorry, who had the promises. And it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing we're going to see is the greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood. We see that in verse 1 and 3, we're following through those verses. There's going to be a number of points here I just want you to track with me. We're going to cover the historical character of Melchizedek, and we're going to see how that fits as uh, the author of Hebrews shares him with the Jewish believers. And the first thing we see is that Melchizedek's priesthood was a universal priesthood. It was not national. We read that in verse 1. See, the nation of Israel referred to God as Jehovah or Yahweh, Jehovah or Yahweh, and this was his covenant name. And they ministered to Israel, the priests, and for Jehovah. But Melchizedek, as he's presented, was priest of the Most High God. This is more of a universal name for God. It more uh, points to the fact of God being possessor of heaven and earth. God of all of creation. God above all national distinctions. That's important for a Jew, certainly. That's important for us. There's no national distinctions when it comes to God and his reign and his rule. Jesus is not just the Messiah of Israel, but of the whole world. And the significance is that Melchizedek and Jesus shared a universal priesthood. Melchizedek's was universal. It was national. A priest of the Most High God. And this priest, Melchizedek, he served the one true God hundreds of years Before the Levitical priesthood came into effect. He served God as a priest And so essentially what the author is saying to these Jewish believers and to the believers there is even your own scriptures Recognize that a priesthood that is separate from Aaron and Levi existed long before Aaron and Levi came and for a Jew that's a hard pill to swallow that there's a priesthood greater than theirs And that Melchizedek is a bit of a type of that. And that there is going to be one greater than theirs. And today there are still Jews that would stumble over that understanding of that priesthood. Of Jesus' priesthood and Melchizedek's. The second thing we see is that Melchizedek was a king. No one else was a king and a priest at the same time. In the Old Testament you were not allowed to serve as king. Certainly in the nation of Israel you weren't allowed to serve as a king and as a priest. And there were reasons for that. Israel is not allowed to serve that office simultaneously. But in Second Chronicles, we read of King Uzziah in chapter 26. If you want to go and read that, you can see exactly this play out, this reality. He goes and he tries to serve that function of king and priest at the same time. And God um, curses him and he dies. And for the reason of disobeying God and for trying to serve as a king and a priest at the same time. But Melchizedek, he was a Canaanite king and priest. He was living in a, cane, in a Canaanite um, land, and he was king and priest, which shows us that even in a world of paganism and polytheism and other gods to be worshipped, that you can worship the one true God, and that God has somebody and has a remnant of his people that are serving him faithfully in spite of the world around them and the people around them, we can serve God faithfully and follow Him faithfully. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's possible. And Job is another example of that. But the dual role of priest and king was predicted by the prophets in Zechariah 6. David says it in Psalm 110, but Zechariah says this, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. That idea of a king, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. There was a prophecy that there was going to be a king and a priest simultaneously serving, and Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. He's our priest and our king. And Melchizedek was an example of this, or a type of this to come. Then in verse 2, we also see the priesthood of Melchizedek was righteous and peaceful, Salem is the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem, and so it's interesting that God had a man serving as a high priest or as a, the priest of him, certainly in God's ancient city before it was going to be filled with the temple and God's people. And that's interesting. His name means king of righteousness. His rule was a, and his reign was a reign of peace and righteousness, it was peaceful. And we notice this because he didn't participate in what was going on in Genesis 14. He wasn't a part of the war that was going on between the kings. He was a peaceful king. And his name was great for those reasons. For being righteous and for being peaceful. The next thing we see, though, about Melchizedek is that his genealogy was missing. In verse 3a, we see this. The Bible character, according to Genesis 14 of Melchizedek, has no genealogy. That doesn't mean that he was eternal. It doesn't mean that he was an angel or a ghost or some kind of figment of an imagination. Just because he doesn't have a genealogy in Scripture doesn't mean he doesn't actually have one. But it is interesting that this this language without genealogy is never used in Scripture because it doesn't make sense. Everybody has a genealogy. And so the way that he's presented in Scripture, which just points to the divinity and the inspiration of Scripture as God divinely works through it, that you would see a man, Melchizedek, with three verses, with no genealogy, recorded in Genesis, and then in Hebrews chapter 7, for the first time, he makes this connection between the two, and then we as New Testament believers get to read that and see that, we see the inspiration of God all throughout Scripture, The connections in those little details, in those little things that we would glance over. God is a part of all those things, and He is in all of those details. And they're all for His glory. And that's such a reality in our lives, the things that go on in our lives, the little details in our lives that God is in control of, that He is using to glorify Himself, to make us more like Him. Those things matter to God, and they are part of our lives for a reason. And Melchizedek is part of the Old Testament for a reason. Because he was personally appointed by God to serve as a king and a priest. So the point is that origin is irrelevant to the Melchizedekian priesthood. It's irrelevant. To Aaron, that was everything. You had to be a Levite. To the Levites, you had to be. But for Melchizedek, that wasn't the case. God chose him to be there, and God chose him to serve in that way. And so his genealogy is missing. And then we see that his priesthood was eternal. In the second half of verse 3, we see this eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. Again, as we're led to see that he has no genealogy, he also has no beginning and no end. And we read even further, it's spoken of him that he is living, right? Not dead. He has no end. Individually, a priest could serve for a limited amount of years. Numbers 8 said 25 years is how long a priest could serve. And then it doesn't matter how faithful they were, they were to give up that office to the next man in line. Melchizedek didn't have an end in the service that he was giving to God in in how God had called him. He's presented in Genesis as somebody who served eternally, perpetually, until further notice, or forever, in the case of Jesus Christ. And so Melchizedek, actually, if he did live forever, he wouldn't be a type as the Hebrew author explains him to be. He would be part of the reality of Jesus Christ being of the Melchizedek priesthood Melchizedek, if he, if he had no end, he would actually be that person. And so he did have an end. He's not actually an eternal character. He's a real man who lived. But as he's presented in the New Te- or the Old Testament, rather, he is presented to be a, a, an eternal figure. And it's really that perpetual priesthood and that serving of God, symbolizing an eternal priesthood. And then finally, we see of the Melchizedekian priesthood that he was a type of Christ. In verse 3C, we see this, this language used, he resembled the Son of God. He was not the Son of God, but he resembled the Son of God. What is a type? A type in Scripture is a person or a thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or a thing in the New Testament. When we say someone is a type of Christ, we're saying that person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that corresponds to the character or the actions in the New Testament. And I go further to say that the New Testament always identifies these types. We don't just get to make them up as we read them, but certainly we see them presented to us. And there are many different types in Scriptures. The sacrificial system is a type. The Passover meal, what happened when God brought His people out of Egypt, is a type. The tabernacle is a type. All of God and Christ's redemption for us. Those are all types of what Christ is going to do for us and has done for us. But the New Testament identifies those as such. And so some would think of Melchizedek as being the pre-incarnate Christ, but because of these words resembling the Son of God, he couldn't be Jesus Christ. It wasn't a pre-incarnate Christ that came to Abraham. It was, in fact, a man that lived, and that was an Old Testament character. But the way that the Scriptures present him is a little bit mysterious. And there's a reason for that that we're going to get into. And as the author of Hebrews is trying to argue, as he makes this connection for the first time. And really, what does he say in verse 4? See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. This man was great. He was incredible. He was mysterious, but he was great. And so we see in verse 4 through 10, then, the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. In the remaining verses, there are two things that prove that Melchizedek was superior to the Levitical priesthood. And this is important, again, for these Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to that. But it's important for us as well this morning. The first thing we see in verse 4 through 6, and sprinkled in the final verses as well, is that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Abraham tithed to him. Just remember where Abraham is in his history, right? He is coming off a very um, courageous victory, Certainly, he would have felt, um, or at least people would have seen him as great. He just took 318 men in in a stealth mission and defeated four kings and uh, came back with all those possessions and with his nephew Lot. An incredible story that doesn't get a lot of detail in Genesis. And not only this, but in Genesis 12, he's the man to who God promised he was going to bless the entire world through his ancestors. Right, So Abraham is a significant character, and for Abraham to recognize Melchizedek as an important person to the point where he is willing and able and desirous to tithe to him says something. Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek, of this character, of this king that came to him, of who he was, of how he's appointed by God, and of how he was serving the Most High God. See, Abraham was under no obligation to tithe to Melchizedek. Like the nation of Israel was to tithe to the priests, Abraham wasn't under any obligation. But he recognized his worthiness. He recognized God's call on his life as, the, as a, a priest of the Most High God, and so he voluntarily gave to God. And the reality is for you and me, we are under no obligation to give a certain amount or percentage, or anything to God. We're under no obligation. The New Testament doesn't tell us we need to serve this much and give this much, right? God, that's open-ended, but it's implied that when we look at the gospel, and when we look at what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we look at who God is and the character of who He is and His Son, that we are going to want to give to Him great things. Our lives, our service, our resources, all of those things. See, Abraham's tithe represented thankfulness to God. But it doesn't mean that our giving is not optional. We give based on our love and our devotion to God. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 6? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The amount that we give and the things that we give It tells God and it tells us where our treasure is and how much we love God. And so do I recognize that all I have is because of Christ, because of God. That without His love for me, I would not have the things that I have. And that I give to God because, wow, God would choose to bless me. A sinner, somebody who does not love Him faithfully who does not deserve this. There's nothing that I deserve. The only thing that I've earned in this life is hell. Everything else is by the grace of God that I have it. And so out of gratitude, God, here is a gift to you. Here's my worship to you. That's what we see when Abraham tithes to the high priest Melchizedek. So some will be tempted to doubt what the author is arguing, especially a Jew. Well, the Levites, they collected tithes as well. We see this argumentation in these verses. The Levites collected tithes, that means they're great, right, because of that. And he goes on to argue, and those descendants of Levi, in verse 5, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. There's a significance there because Melchizedek had no relation to Abraham, and yet Abraham tithed to him. The Levites got their status from the law, whereas in the case of Melchizedek, he didn't. It came from God. And not only that, but in verse 8, we're reminded that the Levites were mortal men, whereas Melchizedek was not, at least in the way he was presented, he was not a mortal man. So Melchizedek's priesthood was superior In the way that we see Abraham tithing to him. And in verse 9 and 10, you even see that argumentation that the Levites in advance paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were in the loins of Abraham. They were his ancestors. And so it's almost as if he's saying you could argue that because the Levites are going to come from Abraham, they are actually the ones who tithe Melchizedek as well, this great high priest from God. The point being, your Jewish scriptures point to a priesthood that is greater and that was greater than yours, greater than you and your ancestors, and they acknowledge that through these tithes. So the priesthood was a type of the priesthood to come, Jesus Christ. From every angle, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater, is superior, and finally we see That in the way that he was blessed by Abraham, that Abraham was blessed by him in verse 1 we see and also verse 7 through 10. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed them or blessed him who had the promises. In the Jewish mind, there's no one greater than Abraham. And yet the superior always blesses the inferior. And we're going to see that in our benediction this morning. What does the blessing say in Genesis 14? Blessed be Abraham, that's what Melchizedek said, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It was all God. It was all God, Abraham. God did it all. Everything in your life, God did that for you. That victory, that came from God. Christian, everything you have came from God. God is the one who gives the victory. And so do you recognize God's grace in giving you everything that you have? Your, Your job is by God's grace. Your family is by God's grace, whether good or bad. The car you have, the house that you live in is all by the grace of God. The church family that you fellowship with is by God's grace. The fact that you're able to wake up this morning is by God's grace. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because he was worthy to be there because God chose him to be there. In every way possible, Melchizedek's priesthood was greater than the Jewish Levitical priesthood. And so we turn then to the greatness of Jesus Christ because that's really what this connection is being made here. The Hebrew author sees this for the first time. He sees Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He sees the priestly function and role of King Jesus, and he connects the two. For the first time, he's sharing this with him. And you can understand then why he has to take a break and say, you've got to be there. You've got to to be right with Jesus. You've got to believe in him to be able to accept what I'm about to share with you as we've studied And the first thing we see is that Jesus is the King of righteousness and peace. Hebrews 1 says this about Jesus the Son You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Ephesians chapter 2 For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, in his flesh, sorry, the dividing wall of hostility. See, even though Melchizedek's priesthood was, was peaceful and righteous, it was nothing compared to what God was going to give his people in Jesus Christ. It was a type of what was going to come for them. Just like the Aaronic priesthood was never full of righteousness and peace, and it never fully dealt with their sins, with the nation of Israel's sins, as we know. That problem of sin was always still a problem, but it, it was a type of what was to come, The only divine king priest, Jesus Christ, is he's the only one who can give righteousness. And in Psalm 85, it says beautifully, steadfast love and faithfulness they meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And speaking of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, two things have been done for you. The two things that we long for is to be right with God. And what we need is to be right with God That's the first thing. And then to be at peace with God. And both of those things have been done with and satisfied through the work of Jesus Christ. Through his body shed on the cross for us. And that's a beautiful thing for us. That you and I will never be counted as sinful again. Because as soon as you walk out of here, I don't know about you, but I'm going to sin today. And you're going to sin. And God's never going to see you if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He's never going to see you as a sinner. He's going to see you as righteous. And you're going to be at peace with Him forever, eternally, until He comes back for you, His bride. So it doesn't matter what you do. Well, it does, because I want to serve God with my life and love Him for what He's done. But no sin in my life is a barrier anymore between me and God. And that's an incredible thing, that God would do that for you and me. What great love that is, that God would make possible through Jesus Christ, righteousness, And peace for us. So we can come to Romans 5 and it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ gives us peace in our life by dealing with first the righteousness and then by giving us peace. There's no peace apart from Jesus Christ. And you can tell that to anybody. There's no peace apart from Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that we have for the world is that God gives us peace. Do you want peace in your life? Do you want peace in your family? At your job? Jesus invites you to come to Him. Come to me and I will give you rest, He says. His life, flesh and blood were given to us and for us so that this could be made possible. And, as a, and, and then He gives us the strength to go out and to share that. And to bring that kind of healing to the world, to the world and say, God has an answer through Jesus Christ for righteousness and peace. And so Jesus' priesthood is a righteous and a peaceful one. Then we see that Jesus, we see his legitimate genealogy in 1 Peter 2. We have a reference there. Jesus was an antitype to Melchizedek because he was coming to be... What Melchizedek foreshadowed, Jesus was that, and so he has no genealogy, or at least in Jesus' case, his genealogy is not important as he served as the priest. See, Jesus did have a genealogy. Matthew and Luke kind of share that. It's important that Jesus came from and was an Israelite, but it was not important that he was a Levite to serve as a priest, because Jesus wasn't from the line of the Levites. And yet God chose him as his chosen man to serve as priest on behalf of us, to sacrifice his life for us and to be our king, our savior, and our Lord. And so according to Jewish scriptures, Jesus wasn't qualified to be that, and yet we see through Melchizedek that Jesus certainly was by the way that God had chosen him. Jesus was legitimate because of his personal worthiness, not because of his heritage and his lineage. He was worthy because God chose him, John three sixteen right? God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And First Peter says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was perfect. He was able to be that perfect high priest for us because of his perfection. And so Jesus' genealogy was legitimate, and Melchizedek foreshadows that. And then finally we see Jesus is our eternal priest. I said a priest can only serve for a time. We know that because of the Old Testament. The priesthood was always temporary. And it ended when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6, they say there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Christ is the true priest. He's the eternal priest. John 1, for in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Jesus is eternal. And we've sung of that this morning. So that when we come to hebrews 7 as jeff's going to share next week it says this in verse 24 he holds his priesthood permanently and he can because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them god is our eternal jesus christ is our eternal high priest constantly the throne of God and with God making intercession for us. He's our great high priest, our living high priest. It's incredible that we serve a God, we serve a a king who is coming back for us and who is eternal. The priests that made sacrifices for the Israelites was not. Their work was never lasting, it was never permanent, and yet Jesus Christ's work on the cross is sure and it is permanent for us. And so it's an assuring word to the Jews and to the world that who had come to Christ, to, as the author shares, this is an ensuring word to them. And so as we conclude then, as we wrap this up, let's go back to that thing, the, the idea of names, as we thought about at the beginning. There are names that are recognizable to almost anybody. What names should those people know? What names should we know? Many have heard the name of Jesus Christ. Some have heard Jesus Christ and seen the wrong things about Jesus Christ. And when you and I invite people to know Jesus Christ, we're not inviting them to follow us. We're inviting them to follow Jesus. And so even though you're imperfect and you're going to sin, that doesn't mean you can't invite somebody to know Jesus Christ and to follow him. Because you're not calling them to follow you. You're calling them to follow Jesus. Jesus who is perfect. Jesus who died for their sins. Come and see through Jesus what God has done and what he can do for you. That's the name that everybody needs to know. Jesus Christ. He's the man who died for the sins of the world, for the whole world. He's the man who died so that we can have a relationship with God. And you can either reject that or you can place your faith in it. You have two options. And if you place your faith in Him, then you have an anchor, as Jeff shared last week. You have someone working for you, making intercession for you, helping you through His Holy Spirit in your life. You have someone who you can hold on to in the storms of life because we know that life is hard. But because of his greatness, because of who he is and what he's done, we can hold on to him. Because of the permanence of his priesthood, we can hold on to him. Because he's dealt with our biggest problem, our sin. He's dealt with that. And so cling to him, hold on to him. Jesus Christ is the name that we need to know. Jesus Christ is the name that the world needs to know. Let's pray as we close this morning. Father God, thank you again for this time to come together this morning to consider Christ and to consider how you have used all of Scripture to point to Him, God. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for that reality that is seen in the Hebrew author as he connects Melchizedek to your Son, Jesus Christ, God. And we thank you so much that, that you sent a Son and a priest and a King for us to submit to and to look to, one that loves us one whose work is eternal and sure and permanent, God. And we are so grateful for that, that when we leave here this morning and we consider the gospel and the goodness of Your grace in our lives, that we are going to turn away from that at some point this week or today. And we're going to reject that and we're going to choose to do something that we know Your Word says is wrong or is against what Your will is for us. And yet, because of Your Son and Jesus Christ and his work, we are able to come to you and to be seen as righteous. And God, that is a work that is so good for us, something that we can hardly grasp and hardly thank you for. And yet, God, we are here this morning to do that and to thank you and to worship you because of what you've done for us. And so, God, we pray for your help. And your guidance as we consider these things and as we consider your word, may these truths and these realities help us to treasure you more in our lives as we leave this week. God, we pray for these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.